Welcome to uh, Human Things Podcast, Merely Human Ministries, Episode 6. Hey, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Thank you for joining us again for the Human Things Podcast. Uh, this is actually the Human Things 2.0 podcast series where we've rebooted it. And this is actually 2.0 of Episode 6 because we had some tech issues so we're going back tech issues and some stupid host issues. We're going to fix both of those in, in two fell swoops. This is first fell swoop. The next one is that we're not going to have Megan Alm in this episode. She'll be joining us for a later episode or for the next episode, hopefully, uh, because of some technical issues we had. Let me get started first. Uh, this was this has been bugging me a little bit. Most most of the time, I don't think it's necessary in this world to take sides. I, 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 I do my best to not take sides unnecessarily. So I watch a lot of places where people take sides. They feel like they need to identify with one group of another. Some of it comes from uh, just, you know, the need to identify with a group. Some of it comes from cult branding. I don't know if you've done much, if you've ever done much research on that. I would, I would encourage you to look at how people fall into cult branding where they fall in love with a brand of some sort and it becomes of, like religious significance to them. Uh, and and you, it's good to know this about yourself, right? I have, I have shared far and wide my unreasonable ad- adoration for Dyson vacuums. I don't have the slightest idea how I, I don't know anything about vacuum technology. I I don't have, but I do love vacuuming. It is a, a, an interesting fact, but love it so much that it's irritating to my family. Uh, I enjoy a, a clean, freshly vacuumed floor and I like vacuums. And somewhere along the way, that guy with the British accent convinced me that Dyson vacuums were the greatest vacuum cleaners ever. And I spend an unreasonable amount of money on a Dyson vacuum when I go out to buy a new vacuum cleaner. And I, I don't have any idea why I'm convinced it's so great, but it is. You see people who actually have this kind of cult branding for things like Starbucks. Uh, a lot of times where Starbucks becomes elevated, it's more than just coffee to them. It's an, it's, um, you see it with Apple products or, or some people are Android. And there's where you get that division, right? Are you Apple or are you Android? Or, or which one are you? Are, are you have to make a choice? You have to be one or the other. Are you DC or are you Marvel? You must make a choice. And then people live as if this mattered. I, I see people in comment sections all the time talking about movies where they say, well, I'm a DC person or I'm a Marvel person. And they, they tend to actively root against the other company or the production company, which by the way, I am and always have been a comic book person was raised up. My dad, Loved comic books. He would go on business trips. He would come home. Every time he came home, I feel like he had a stack of comic books for me. Now, sometimes he would buy me the same ones, so I had duplicates, but it didn't matter. He would come home. He would hand me a stack of comic books when I was this young kid, and I would read them and loved them. And and that carried over to my own kids, who are now comic book fans as well. But I never, ever, even when I was younger, bought into the idea that I was supposed to pick between Marvel and DC. I thought that was silly. And I will tell you, also... To me, as a lifelong comic book fan, if you're fighting over the Marvel DC thing, you're missing what the true fight among comic book people are, or is, the true fight is. And that is this, Jack Kirby or Stan Lee, that's the fight the initiated have. If you're fighting about Marvel versus DC, you look like a rube to me. You look like somebody who doesn't understand the landscape of of comic book fighting. But if you're having an argument about Jack Kirby versus Stan Lee, you get it. You're, you're a real one. You understand the, the comic book world enough to know that that's where. And, and by the way, that is one place where I say I believe 
taking sides does matter. You're either a Jack Kirby guy or a Stan Lee guy. And, and, and this translates beyond that as well. I would say in the same way you're either Jack Kirby or Stan Lee, you're either Nikola Tesla or Thomas Edison. And, and you can, I can know, I know a lot about you. If you know about enough about the conflicts that those parties had with each other uh, to take a side, I, I know a lot about you immediately. Now, it's, I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate reasons to be a Thomas Edison person or a Stan Lee person. It has to do with your personality. You may just think the the marketer, the organizing principle behind it all is the genius and that the creative forces don't deserve the same kind of credit or financial reward. But, but Nikola Tesla was a creative force, the likes of which the world has rarely seen. Jack Kirby in my mind, is genuinely the father of much of what we experience in the comic book world. Stan Lee and Thomas Edison stand as those people who are great at bringing in other creative forces, giving them some sort of focus, and then profiting off of it. Uh, so I know I say this, I, 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 I struggle with Stan Lee, and I, I, I do. I, struggle, I get a, a nasty look from JD. I struggle with Stan Lee because when you know the history of how he treated some of his creative force, uh, it's difficult not to start to resent the amount of credit he took for things that he didn't actually do. And it would be one thing if he were just taking credit for taking the, 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 you know, Kirby had a tendency to be very abstract in his creations and Stanley made them more marketable, brought them to the streets. If that's all he's taking credit for, that would be one thing. But there were times where he, he, he gave credit for work that Sta that Jack Kirby did to like his uncle <laughs> to, to Stan Lee said, my uncle created this when he did not. And, and, and I, I, was, I was such, I tried so hard with, I do not think it's, I think it is low rent when someone dies to go after them online. So when Stan Lee died, I wanted to back off and give all the Stan Lee friends all the room that they needed to mourn the loss of Stan Lee. But I did finally break out. I get it. You're mourning him. But you, you need to stop putting Captain America on the list of people that he created. He had nothing to do with that one. And this isn't even one where he's, it's arguable. He didn't give us Captain America. That's all other. So if you, if you look into the history of, their, of, the, of how all of these comic book creators related to Stan Lee, it, it, it's, it tracks to me very similar to how Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison related to each other. Edison was a genius at being able to take advantage of the creativity of other people. You hear the same charge by today, standard going towards uh, Elon Musk, that Elon Musk isn't the genius. Elon Musk, great genius, is providing an environment where geniuses thrive and their ideas become profitable. If that was what Edison did, and that's what Stan Lee did. I tend to be the person that looks at the actual creative force, Jack Kirby, who without him, the modern comic book era would not exist. He was just a massively creative human being. And, and even you'll see elements of, uh, or homage to Kirby and a lot of the modern artists who have moved well beyond the way that Kirby drew and moved into more realistic drawing or more of the traditional exaggerated physical traits drawing that we see in comic books. But, but the creative force of Jack Kirby still resonates through all of the, to DC and through uh, the, the Marvel Universe. As a matter of fact, here's an interesting thing about Jack Kirby, uh, to me, that's interesting. He's the creator of Darkseid, the character, if you saw the 
the Zack Snyder DC, um, the Zack Snyder Justice League on the on HBO Max. Which, by the way, if you haven't watched it and you're a comic book fan, you should watch it. It's great. I love it. The Snyder cut was was like a gift to Jay Watts. It was a it was a thing that I sit around in awe, right? I mean, there's very few things in this world that I sit around and marvel over. But every once in a while, you can see me sitting there looking happy. I might just be sitting around thinking, I can't believe we actually got the Snyder Cut. That's amazing. It went from no way we'll ever see it to actually getting in. For people like me, that was a big deal. Uh, but Dark Side was a creation of Jack Kirby. Thanos, who was the center of the Marvel Universe, was a ripoff of Dark Side. When Kirby had left Marvel and gone to DC and was creating the new gods, and then they were creating a series to rival the new gods, there is actually a story where somebody was drawing different versions, Marvel versions of what they had, what Kirby was creating over the new gods, that somebody saw him working on one. And he said, if you're going to rip off Kirby, at least rip off the best thing that he's done over there. Make a dark side rip off. And that's where Thanos comes from. That's how Marvel creates Thanos. He is literally made to be a dark side ripoff of what Kirby was doing with the new gods. And so you, you see Jack Kirby's creative force still resonating through both the DC and Marvel universes. And, and almost nobody outside of the comic book world really knows about him. And it's the same way that you, and, and Stan Lee died beloved and getting credit for the, being the creative force behind all of those. And he wasn't the creative force. He was the marketing force but not the creative force. And it was the same way with Nikola Tesla, who was a genius at creating things that ran on electricity and play and, and experiments with electricity, uh, alternating current. Tesla was the, the guy behind much of what we see. And then even radio, it, they just, they just kept taking Tesla's inventions because he was the genius of inventing them and creating them, but he wasn't a genius at getting them to the people. And so other people stepped in and moved them from Tesla into the marketplace and took credit for them. And we'll spend the rest of humanity getting credit for them as being inventors. And they weren't really inventors. They were people who plagiarized Tesla, who was just too weird to be able to take advantage of the genius that he had. So, so there to me, in most of this life, I will never take sides because I don't see any point in it. But I do take sides on those because for whatever reason, my heart goes with the creators. My heart goes with the people who actually brought it into existence, who saw, who came to a void and then were able to draw out of that void something beautiful like Jack Kirby and Nikola Tesla did. And, and, and you know, I get it. You have to have your Edison's, you have to have your Stan Lee's, uh, but, but you're just, they're just never going to get to me the same adoration and appreciation that the creators get. So that, that to me is an interesting conversation point, right? Don't take sides most of the time. It's not necessary to take sides. Uh, but when it comes to Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, I will know a lot about you. I don't. I won't dislike you if you're a Stan Lee guy. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I'll know a lot about what you value in this world if you're Stan Lee over Jack Kirby, if you're Edison over Tesla. And we'll know some of the differences between how you and I evaluate the world from that. Let's get on to something more important. Let's get on to... Um, as part of the, the redoing of this and reworking of, of, of revisiting what we had already filmed and correcting some things, I want to share, I talked on the last episode about something I had heard about a person talking to a group locally from a college student. I want to revisit it because since we did that, I have found out some things I didn't know and I've gotten some things cleared up. And I still think it's worth visiting because I'm still irritated about it. So let me give you the background on this. So a college student comes and they have asked me not to share 
their name or the name of the speaker because they don't want any, like the world is listening to this podcast and, and millions of people are going to watch it and run out and immediately cause a stir, but they don't want that kind of heat coming from sharing something with me. So I'm going to have to talk in generalities. A college professor at this institution who is new to this institution, who has been working at another institution was invited to speak at a cohort within this university. So if you're not familiar with how these cohorts work, let's say you go to, we'll use Kennesaw State University because two of my students are there. So you go to Kennesaw State University, you apply, you become a student there, or you apply and you get into the Honors College. And then within the Honors College, you have the opportunity to apply to two other cohorts in the Honors College. One of them is Ancient and Modern Classics. That comes with a three-year course uh, where you have to read the great works of, of literature or the great works of history. And it becomes part of the way in which you process information and you end up with a minor in it. My, my daughter is in that. And she, this summer she'll spend five weeks in Italy and Montepulciano. Uh, the next summer she'll spend five weeks at Oxford. And, and so within the honors college, 25 students of that incoming freshman class were chosen to be in that cohort. So it is, a best of the best. It's an elite. It's, it's, it's an academic group of people who are serious scholars in pursuit of serious study. There's another cohort, the President's Emerging Global Scholars Program. It's another one. 25 students go in there. And you have these, and, and again, it's 25 chosen. They get to go on trips. They have special opportunities to hear speakers. All of these things happen. So you have these cohorts within honors colleges where students who, and all of these cohorts are picked by people who are, are intensely serious about their studies and they're meant to have opportunities that their success in life has given them that other students won't have those same opportunities. So that's why I think that's important because that means that the people that this speaker in the sense that we're talking about it, were called in to talk to are serious students, serious university students, uh, scholars. I mean, in the program, they're identified as scholars. So this is a college professor with expertise in this area that's invited to talk to this group. And so as it was reported to me, and then I searched and got more information about what happened, they were talking about in this particular case, this scholar who is an expert in this area, but has a different view of the, this area than I do. This scholar comes in and they make a series of claims. One of them is that Dobbs versus Jackson decision the decision that defeated Roe v. Wade across the United States in the Supreme Court and came into existence last year, Dobbs versus Jackson is going to put women's rights in other areas at risk. Now, this is not a unique claim. The, the first part of it is, I'll cover it anyway, but it's not a unique claim. I've actually written about this for the Christian Research Journal as well. The claim is that because Roe v. Wade was decided on what was called a, a due process decision in the 14th Amendment, the due process clause, where all people are provided due process. And so, and, and so what happens in the, with those due process, you have two different kinds of rights in the Constitution. You have what we call enumerated rights. Those are the rights that are written out in the Constitution. And then on this side over here, you have unenumerated, unenumerated rights. Excuse me, unenumerated rights. Those are rights that are not explicitly written out in the Constitution 
but they that they call penumbras and emanations. The Constitution speaks of them without speaking of them. And so you, if you have no enumeration, if you don't have any written, explicitly written right, it doesn't mean that it's not a constitutional right. It just means it's not an explicitly written constitution right, and it may be an unenumerated right. And there's a standard, legal standards, to test for whether something is unenumerated. So here is the legal standard. Two things we're looking for. Was it traditionally recognized all throughout the history of the United States? Meaning that even though it wasn't in the Constitution, if you go to local bodies and you look at how they governed, was this right there all along and in the law and traditionally understand to be an, understood to be an important right for American citizens all the way through, even though it wasn't enumerated? Or is it necessary for the free exercise of other enumerated rights? So the right to an abortion in Roe v. Wade was grounded in the right to privacy. The right to privacy was considered an unenumerated right, but it falls into the category of necessary for the free exercise of other rights. I can't pursue happiness, human flourishing, free speech, all of the things I'm allowed to pursue as an American citizen without some reasonable expectation of privacy. I should be free to have my own private beliefs, my own private thoughts, my own private conversations, my own freedom of association, all of these things. And freedom of association means that me and people who are like-minded ought to be able to meet in privacy and discuss the things that are important to us. So the free exercise, the ne it's necessary for the free exercise of other rights for us to have privacy. And so that right to privacy extends to things like interracial marriage. It extends to things like the use of contraception. It extends to gay marriage. It extends to, to these other things. And so when they saw... And, and the claims of this particular person that came in and said women had a right and it was taken away from them by the Supreme Court and now all rights are at risk. It's important of that background to how we come up with justifying the existence of unenumerated rights because this is the first reckless claim this scholar who is an expert on this area has made. They have said that because Roe v. Wade was overturned, now... Griswold versus Connecticut, which gives contraception rights, is at risk. Uh, Oberfell, which gives gay marriage, is at risk. All of these due process, and, and here's why. And, and uh, the student came to me and said, they wanted to know if this was reasonable. Because they didn't speak up or have an argument at the time in this class, because they don't know, right? An expert is standing in front of them, and they say, what do I, what do I know? I don't know what this person knows. So they ask me, are these, are these legitimate concerns? I explained to them in Dobbs versus Jackson, you had multiple levels of what happened there, right? You had a, you had five justices who agreed to overturn Roe v. Wade. You had one justice that ruled in favor of Jackson uh, or versus of, of the state of Mississippi in the Dobbs versus Jackson, but did not want to overturn it. That, that would be chief justice Roberts. And then you have three that dissented. So the concurring opinion, or the, the majority opinion, had five signers. And then you had concurring opinions. And you had one from Justice Thomas. And Clarence Thomas does write in his concurring opinion that he thinks, and just in general, he doesn't like these sorts of due process decisions. He doesn't think that they're legally weighty enough. By the way, the, the idea that the Roe v. Wade decision ha didn't have the heft, the philosophical and legal heft, to survive challenge has been known by all parties 
since it was decided. It has been at risk all along because it was a weak legal decision. So Thomas says the grounding of it was so weak, it was, it was vulnerable. And others are vulnerable in his mind as well. So there's where you get the concern. Thomas is saying, sure, these other due process decisions are also vulnerable. But here's the thing. Thomas wrote a concurring opinion, and he's the only one that put his name on it. No one else signed it. No one else agreed with it. Not any of the other justices said, I think he's right. Brett Kavanaugh wrote his own, Justice uh, Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote his own concurring opinion, and in there he explicitly says, I would never use this reasoning to overturn others. This is a very special case. Samuel Alito, in the majority opinion, says, and, he rec- and all of these are legal minds, Great. Whether you like them or not, these are people who are accomplished jurists. And they say, Samuel Alito writes, there is a difference between this and those others and that this particular one has a physical victim. It is undeniably, objectively true that there is a nascent human life destroyed in every single abortion procedure. And that is the difference between this and all of those other cases. When we talk about reasonable exercises of privacy, it ends when another life is destroyed. This is explicitly written in Alito's majority opinion and then reaffirmed in Kavanaugh's. You had five to four in order to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's what you got. If any one of that five breaks ranks, you can't overturn those other things. And one of them, Brett Kavanaugh has already said, I will never vote to overturn those other things based on this legal reasoning. And Alito said that he would never in the way that he decided it as he wrote the decision out. So so right there is a problem for somebody who comes in and says, we're at risk, they're gonna go away. The court disagrees with you and they made that very clear. Now, there is some precedent because in Griswold, when Griswold versus Connecticut was first written, there were people who said, if you expand this right to privacy, it could give a right, constitutional right to abortion. And they said, oh, we would never do that. And then they turned around and did it. But at this point, I think you ha- you, there's no evidence that this is coming. Th- these are not people that are looking down the line and saying, we want to take these things on. And the one person who did seem to indicate that he would be interested in revisiting them, not because he hates the outcomes of those, but because he hates the way those decisions were made, those legal decisions were crafted, is the only one who said that, and no one signed his concurring opinion or joined him in it. So you have eight of nine Supreme Court justices who have signed the majority opinion who say we will never do this, or has written a concurring opinion who said he was never do this, or disagreed with the opinion altogether, so clearly wouldn't do that, which would be four that disagreed with overturning Ruby Wade on those grounds. So for a scholar to walk into a room of students and tell them that as women, you are about to lose your rights, and as homosexuals, you're about to lose your right to marriage, and as mixed race couples, you're about to lose your right to marriage, and as any woman out there, you're about to lose your right to contraception. For them to come in and say those things to me without being challenged, and this is where it gets mad, and I'll, this will be a recurring theme today, without being challenged by anyone else in the room. With the full weight and authority of their name, the letters behind their name, and the institution for bringing them in as experts, and not a single person pushed back and said, 
I, I get that you're having a rough year because you're angry about what happened, but what you're saying goes against what was explicitly written in those decisions where they address your concerns. Okay, that's bad enough for me, but here's where it gets worse. And this is, then the person says, the 19th Amendment is at risk. Women's right to vote. If they can take away your right to get an abortion, they, whoever they are, can take away your right to vote. Now, I did find out. This made me crazy when I first heard about it because I didn't get all these details. And so since having filmed a different conversation about this, I went and tried to get more details, and I got more details. So, so this person at least understands that the amendments are part of the Constitution. So the 19th Amendment, once you get an amendment, it is now constitutional. That is just it. So the language of the 19th Amendment says that women have a right to vote. And then she says, yes, we have the 19th Amendment, but we have repealed amendments before. And she brings up prohibition. She said, prohibition was repealed. Okay, let's talk for a second about why this is, and this was where I just lost it when I was talking to the student and we went we revisited all these details. Let us talk for a second about how difficult it is to get an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Because here are the things that are necessary for an amendment to the Constitution. Two-thirds of the House of Representatives, two-thirds of the U.S. Senate, and then three-quarters of the states. All of them. That's You have to get all of those markers to get to a U.S. constitutional amendment. You have to have agreement of two-thirds of the House of Representatives, two-thirds of the U.S. Senate, and three-quarters of the states ratifying it either by vote or convention. That's what you got to get. Now, here's another interesting sidebar. I think, I, I think this is fascinating, but since this feminist uh, brought it up uh, in this classroom as trying to scare all the students about the rights that are being about to be stripped from them, let's just take a sidebar for a moment as we talk about the, the amendment that she brought up. Because she said, prohibition came into existence, and then prohibition was repealed. And she's absolutely right about that, right? The 18th Amendment is the Prohibition Amendment. So interesting, right, that the 18th Amendment is prohibition and the 19th Amendment is that women now have the right to vote. Uh, the right of citizens of the United States to vote should not be denied or bridged by the United States by any on account of sex. That's 1917, uh, was passed and then ratified in 1919 is the Amendment 18, which is prohibition. And then 1919 and ratified in 1920 is women's right to vote. Now, here, here's a fascinating, that it is not incidental that those two amendments are as close to each other as they are. If you go back and read the story of prohibition, the force, the driving force behind the 18th Amendment was the early feminist movement. They were the ones that sought prohibition. They were the ones that flexed. This was the first demonstration of the political power of American feminists. When you're talking about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you're talking about Susan B. Anthony, you're talking about from the mid-19th century through the ratification of the Prohibition Amendment, the 18th Amendment, you're talking about a move that was driven by women that were sick of drunk men being abusive of using their money, the money that they were making at work and spending it and losing it 
at bars and then coming up abusive, not just to the wives, but also to their children. It was a group of people that were just absolutely sick of drunk men. And so doing that, when they, 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 they band together as a group of people had no vote, they had no ability to vote and to push the temperance movement. It was feminist who drove it. And actually what becomes even more interesting, I think after that, it was feminists who actually got rid of it. It was the feminists who drove ending it after they got the ability to vote. And this was in 1933 in the 21st amendment of the constitution. It has the repealing of the 18th amendment. So both the prohibition amendment in the 18th amendment and the repeal of it in the 21st amendment in 1933 were driven by women. Why is this an interesting side note for me? Because the absurdity that you would ever be able to get three quarters of the states and two thirds of the house and the Senate to take away women's right to vote. You couldn't do it if women didn't give up their own right to vote. It's not possible. You would have to have a wave of the majority of women in the United States deciding that they want to give up their right to vote. This isn't like what we're talking about with Roe v. Wade, where it was a law that was fragile from the moment it came into existence because it was specious reasoning and because it was grounded and shaky constitutional grounding, and it was always at risk. And even those people who loved the outcome of it for years have written articles saying, it was wrongly decided, even though the outcomes are appreciated and we need to revisit it or we need to pass a, a, a constitutional amendment or we need to do something grounded in legislation because Roe v. Wade cannot last. It cannot stand up to judicial scrutiny. It will fall sooner or later based on the reasoning that it has. And it did fall just as everyone predicted. And then for you to look at that and say, by extension, one day the 19th amendment may fall is the most reckless type of academic speaking I can possibly imagine. It is making use of your platform and the position that you hold to walk into a group of young scholars who don't have the ability to fight back in that room and to say things so outrageous that it's almost unimaginable that you could say that to them. The 19th Amendment will fall the same way Roe v. Wade does. They're totally different things and you know that. And the 19th Amendment would require two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the states, which would mean you would have to have an entire nation of women fighting to give up their right to vote the same way they fought in the 18th Amendment and then fought it out with the 21st. Women made that amendment happen, and then women got rid of it. They were the driving force on both sides of it. And you were never under reasonable conditions, going to get a nation of women to give up their right to vote. It's so unreasonable as to be outrageous that you brought it up as a possibility in comparison to what happened with Roe v. Wade. And, and to me, I try my hardest to be fair. When I am up on the stage talking about the views that other people hold, I try my hardest to respect. We're going to go over the views of somebody who disagrees with me later, and I'm going to do everything that I can to be as respectful of the idea that a reasonable person holds these views and that if I treat them with respect, then perhaps we can shine light on the differences between these. And if my view is the truth, then we will bring people over. I want to win people with good arguments, not necessarily beat them down in arguments and fights. It's irresponsible to treat this subject matter like that. 
And it made me sad that a scholar of a of, of very considerable reputation, by the way, made these claims in front of a group of students, young scholars beginning their academic life, and nobody else in the room felt it necessary to check that. That's the kind of dialogue that's not helpful. That's not reasonable. It doesn't help a divided group of people get closer to the truth. It's not intended to. It's intended to scare people. And we're at our worst when we're afraid. Everyone is. So be better. Be reasonable. All right, let's move on to the next thing. All right, so the next thing we're going to, every time I say this, it hurts me a little bit. We're going to talk for a second about something that happened on The View, which you have no idea how painful it is to, to have to go through that. But we're going to do it anyway. Uh, and, and not maybe in the same light as I've seen other people cover it, but there's a reason I want to talk about it. And it, it's, sim- it's in a similar vein for what we just discussed. I have experienced many decades now of having agency over our body, of being able to determine when and how many children to have. We know what that feels like. We know what that's done for our lives. We're not going back. I don't care what the laws are. We're not going back. Besides, besides marching and, and protesting, what else do you suggest? Well, well, it doesn't happen murder. overnight. It's not a miraculous... <laughs> what did you say? Murder. <laughs> She's kidding. Wait a second. She's just now, kidding. Don't say that. That's oh, not... you don't know. They'll pick up on that and yeah, just run that's with the it. Worst. She's Joking. just kidding. It's... Okay, so we did cut before, and maybe we've got a little bit more. There is a face that Jane Fonda makes after the she's just kidding, which is... Am I? Like, there is a strong, am I kidding? Um... You gotta love Jane Fonda for these very off-color, very not safe for the view, uh, very not safe for uh, daytime television comments. Um, Jane Fonda is gonna go there. She she's always someone who will say the sort of the thing you're not supposed to say, which is I've never thought of a lot of Republicans perishing in some sort of fiery little tar pit of what. Am I talking out loud? Like, yes, you're not supposed to say uh, any of that. Um, but yeah. So I'm not exactly expecting, it. you know, a bunch of left wing people to suddenly rise up and do murders because, you know, the problem in this country with like ideological terrorism almost always comes from the right. So I'm not worried about that. Um, but I, I do think it was maybe like a, a straight of it was a joke that she made that I think reflects a lot of frustration that a lot of people um, in her position feel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. Jane Fonda on The View with Lily Tomlin and the abortion issue comes up. It comes up a lot on The View. And Jane Fonda, it's, I think it, again, I say things are funny. They're funny to me. I do think it's funny that if you go back and watch the full clip right before Jane Fonda says this, one of the View co-hosts sort of breathlessly excited that Jane Fonda is about to talk about abortion says she's probably going to win a Nobel Prize for what she's about. I'm just so excited about what, what, Queen Jane is about to say to the world. And then when Jane says, you know, murder, everybody in checks, right? It, it takes a second. Have you, what else can we do other than protest? I've thought about murder. And Lily Tomlin, I think, is the first one to say, what did she say? <laughs> and, and then Joy Behar starts to, oh, she's kidding, she's kidding, she's kidding. Now, here's what bothers me about the first section. Before we get to the second section, uh, which was uh, a group of, a, a couple of young uh, women, young women talking about 
the aftermath of all of this. But here, here's what bothers me. What did she say is the question. Oh, she's kidding. Everybody. So the immediate thing is, oh, she's joking. She's kidding. And she gives the look that that lady's so excited about to make sure that everybody knows that, oh, I'm serious. And it's all a joke. I'm willing to concede that I don't think Jane Fonda's about to go out and start murdering people. Right? I, I don't take it that seriously. I'm not. And I didn't get, I'm not easily offended. As a matter of fact, I get irritated when people are offended and people get too worked up. There's a reason why I don't wake up every morning and go try to find somebody saying stupid, something stupid on the internet and then put it online so that I can interact with it. Uh, I, you can always find somebody saying something stupid and ridiculous on the internet. It seems to be the reason the internet exists. So to see that Jane Fonda goes on TV and says something outrageously inappropriate is not shocking to me. And I didn't hear it and say, oh my gosh. I, I, what happened though was the reaction bothers me. She's joking. She's joking. Yeah, she is joking. It's a terrible joke. It's an inappropriate joke. And when there's some measure of recognizing the inappropriateness of it, they don't say you shouldn't joke about things like that in that manner. That's too far. It is the easiest thing in the world to tell somebody that's too far. I do it all the time. We're joking. We're sitting around talking and somebody says something and I say, that went too far. And I get how we got there. We were all cheering each other on. The worst thing that can possibly happen for you is to have a huge cheering section that adores you no matter what you say or you do. Uh, I've mentioned before, I think on this show, but I've mentioned a lot of my talks. Reggie Jackson once said that a third of the people will love you no matter what you're going to do. A third of the people will hate you no matter what you're going to do. The other third of the people are just waiting to see what you're going to do. Uh, and, and they'll evaluate you based on that. So when, when that third of people who love you no matter what you do grows to an unreasonable side and they're just cheering you on and supporting you, that is when you are in the most dangerous place any human being can possibly be. Having the adoration of other human beings is the worst thing that can happen to another human being. It is terrible for your soul. It is terrible for your ability to make reasonable choices about the kind of things that you say. When everybody loves you, you're going to say something unreasonable. And so when you have a, a room full of people saying, oh, she's about to talk and she's going to win the Nobel Prize and we're just going to clap every little thing she says and they get all excited, you understand how you get to the point when then they say something crazy and unreasonable. We could murder people. Why, why is that crazy and unreasonable, by the way? Let's go back and cover that for a second because it's not like that's never been a political tool. We have experienced all throughout human history people in politics who genuinely believe that the answer to disagreement in politics is to murder the people who disagree with them, who murder the people who stand in the way of them reaching their political goals. This is a real thing that has happened. That's why it's an inappropriate joke. And I don't think it, it, it should be hard for all the rest of us to understand that right now we live in a time where the political discord has been ratcheted up to an intensely hot level and people are saying crazy things and doing crazy things. We are already crossing lines and have been for years now in how we deal with these political issues and how we allow them not just to divide us, but to lead us towards violence against each other or threats of violence or whatever. And here we have someone saying, well, we could murder people. So it's a stupid, irresponsible joke. And the responsibility for everybody else in the room when that kind of thing happens is to say, I get where you're coming from, but that's too far. That one was too far. Let's back that up and be reasonable. Nobody does that. Not a single person has the guts to look at Jane Fonda and say, back it up, back it up. Come on. That's, that's unreasonable as a joke. It's in poor taste. We all know it's just important. Just don't. And what is their reason for saying, oh, it's just a joke and covering for her? The other side will make a big deal of this. 
the other side will hear what you said and make We don't want to give them, whoever them is, fodder for you saying something horribly inappropriate because she said it. And it was a stupid, inappropriate joke. Like, don't make those kind of jokes because it's just going to set them off. Okay, that's already bad enough. Have the character, have the, be, be principled enough when people on your own side say something they shouldn't say to just say, don't do that, don't say that. But let's move on now to the reaction of those, those others, those others, two young women. And that was on the damage report, I believe, is the name of the thing they were on. And those women evaluated this. And the first one says, Jane's going to go there. That's just Jane being Jane. She's going to go there and do what? She's going to say the things that we shouldn't say. Now that's where it gets a little alarming because then she jokes, oh, it's not like we think, sit around and think about watching a large number of conservatives die a fiery death. No, we don't say those things out loud. What? Are you kidding me? And by the way, I, on Facebook, I try to cultivate relationships with people from all different sides. And almost everybody on my Facebook, that are Facebook friends with me, are reasonable people. But every once in a while, if I see some of my reasonable people who disagree with me post something and their unreasonable friends who agree with them post comments under, I will go look at the comments and then you will find people talking about wishing people would be dead. Now, I know I see this on both sides and, it, and you should not, just should, should, it's just, it's in poor taste. It's not a great joke. Those, those types of political posturings don't lead to great places. As a matter of fact, the more you call out the most radical voices, the more the most radical voices get excited about the idea that this is their time and they step forward and they get weirder and more violent and more crazy. Only when reasonable people prevail can we have productive discourse and reach closer. You do not get to the truth by fanning the flames of extremism. You don't. That will never get you to the society that you want. It may burn down the one that we all live in, but it won't get us to the place where we want to be. We have history to, this isn't just somebody saying, oh, this is my, I wish we didn't have that level of discourse. You can look at history and see neither side tends to back down. Once one person sees intimidation and bullying as an answer, the other side raises and it raises and it raises. And then it gives a platform and calls out to the most extreme and violent people. And then all the reasonable people have to sit back while they burn the world down around them. That's kind of what the pattern is. And so when we join in this conversation, oh gosh, yes, fiery death. Isn't that great? If only the people who politically disagreed with me would die a violent, fiery death. Oh my gosh, do you hear yourself? Okay, now let's move on to the, the next person who this is where you reach to me, the pinnacle of all of these things, where she says, nobody's going to go murder people because of this. And I agree with her. I don't think anybody's going to go around murdering people because of what Jane Fonda said. Besides, if anybody's going to murder people, it's the right wing people. They're the murderers. Oh, oh my gosh. The level of discourse. Just do better. Be, have, just be, this whole thing should have taken two seconds. This, this whole thing should not have needed all of this talking about. All, all they had to do was the second she said it, principled, reasonable people in the room who agree with her about the issue of abortion could have just said, Jane, that's too far. Back it up. And then nobody has to go through. It's the fact of cover, uh, providing cover for people who agree with you when they have done wrong. It's just a terrible idea. As a matter of fact, I've heard people who have said 
This is the reason that I became disenchanted with one view or the other. I know conservatives. I know people who are now conservative who broke ranks with their progressive beliefs because of that sort of inconsistency. They said there was nothing ever that our side could do that we could admit was bad. And there was nothing ever. I think David Horwood said the same thing about why he ended up becoming leaving liberality and progressivism and moving towards a more conservative view. He said because there was nothing that the conservatives could say that was all right, even when they agreed with us, even when they were saying things that lined up with our belief systems, if they said it, they were still villainized for saying it. They said, well, if there's nothing they can do that's right, then there's no resolution to this. This is not an honest pursuit of the resolution of issues. This is just divisiveness and tribalism for the purpose of divisiveness and tribalism. And I don't want to be a part of that. I want to get closer to solutions. And so when you have people that are unwilling to look at somebody who says something wildly inappropriate and just say, look, that's wildly inappropriate, stop providing cover for them. And we see examples from this on both sides. This thing ends if somebody just looks at the person next to them and says, that was too far, back it off. Let's all get control of ourselves and not make stupid claims like that. Because it is a dangerous world that we live in. And to ramp it up with that kind of hatred just makes it worse. And then the cover afterwards is just off. Everybody, every, everybody, we've got to do better. We've got to do better than that. When somebody says something crazy, just say, I was crazy. Be respectful, right? I have friends that disagree with me on this issue whom I dearly love. I love them. I want them to change their mind. I think they are deeply flawed on this issue. And when we have conversations about it, or we, or oftentimes I avoid conversations about it, but when we do, I try my best to treat them with respect because I recognize that if I'm defending a view that all human beings ought to be treated with, with dignity and respect, that includes the people who disagree with me and I have to reach out. And I was on their side at one point. I was on the other side of this issue. So I know what it feels like to be on that side. And the people who helped convince me that I was wrong were not the people who sat around wishing that I died of a, a fiery death and joked about it. It was the people who talked to me like a human being and thought I was worth trying to change to help see the truth that I was worth a conversation and a civil discussion. I may have even been worth going and doing further research to answer questions that I asked. That's the way that I was changed. And that's the way that I feel like other people will be changed as well. So that's why it's important to me. I hope I never have to talk about the view again, but, but the view be better, do better. Jane Fonda, be better. Lily Tomlin, be better. Damage report, be better. Everybody just be better than that. Just acknowledge when somebody on your side said something stupid. And don't feel like you have to provide them cover. There is no cover for it. It was just reckless stupid. So in a break from normal protocol, we are going to stop right here. We're going to end episode six. Actually, what we did for our listening and viewing audience, we had recorded a very, very long episode where there was a lot of content that we wanted to cover. And for the sake of making it more manageable, we wanted to break it down now. So this episode six will end now as we lead into the next section. Uh, if you've enjoyed our content, always please go to merelyhumanministries.org and contribute to it there. Subscribe to this channel on YouTube, on SoundCloud, on uh, Apple Podcast. The next episode, why I wanted to break it off is because it is what we call the letter, but it was a direct message that was sent to me by somebody who supports abortion rights, and they wanted to justify, help, help, help me to understand what their justifications for supporting abortion were. And there's a lot in that letter. And so upon reflection, we decided the letter should stand alone. So we're going to end this episode here and we're going to begin the next episode with a set aside moment of just the letter. And then we're going to have a whole other episode where Megan Allman comes on to discuss the book happening with us. 
So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. And please join us for what will be episode seven, but will essentially be part two of episode six. Have a wonderful day.